Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our two guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be two COVID regulars appearing together for the first time. These two infectious disease specialists work for their respective state departments of health and have been instrumental during the COVID pandemic. We will welcome back to Dr. Dr. Paul Carson of Fargo, North Dakota, and Paul Seaslack of Portland, Oregon. And I can foresee a Paul problem in referring to people during this episode, so please bear with us. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, Tom, at this point, we're up to 1.2 billion COVID episodes that Dr. Doctor has recorded. <laughs> and is this a first where we've got the two Pauls on at the same time? It, it's the first time we've had each of them on separately, and, and they uh, each respect the other quite a bit. Uh, I think it's going to be fun having them together to, to play off each other. Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited, and we've we've kind of slowed down the COVID episodes a little bit for for our listeners mm-hmm. who are playing along at home because uh, I don't know about you, Tom, but there's this sense of not only hopefully we're getting through things, getting better, getting better, and I, I'm kind of just tired of it. I kind of want you know you watch the news. I'm like, find a new cause, right? Right, pandemic fatigue. I think we'll know it's over when the news. When it's not the top story in the news. Most I can't nights. imagine what's going to happen to take that spot, but eventually it has to because you've got some really good data about uh, the vaccines that have been given and they've delivered, I think at this point, what'd you say? 334 million doses? 330. So I'm looking right now, we are recording this on Tuesday, May 11th. Uh, it will air uh, following Saturday, the uh, 15th in the morning. Uh, yeah, 334 million doses that have been delivered, 263 million have been administered. So that means there's still 70 million doses out there waiting for people to receive. Uh, what I like is that at least 46% of the of Americans have received at least one dose. 35% have received all the doses they need of a vaccine. So two for the mRNA and one for the Johnson & Johnson. And what's even better is percentage of population over age 18, at least one dose, 58%. And what's the best, I think eight, the population over 65 years of age, 84% have received at least one dose. 71% are fully vaccinated. And that is awesome. Yeah, that that's really encouraging. I mean, for everything that we've gone through, and I know we're going to talk about cases and everything. So we want to save, save time for the, the interview. But before we get to our new guests, not our new, our old friends, you know, but new together. <laughs> yes. um, Tom, do you got a medical trivia question? Is there anything else we haven't asked about COVID before? And we're there with the category of blood clots, something unrelated directly to viruses. Thanks be to God. Since blood clots have been in the news regarding one of the COVID vaccines, I thought it'd be a good idea to ask a question about the formation of clots. And there are two essential components, products necessary to combine to make a healthy clot. One comes from a cell that circulates in the blood, and the other one is a protein that is the end product of the coagulation cascade. So what are these two components necessary for a healthy clot? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show, but we will get there, and you're going to enjoy getting there here on Dr. Doctor. Here we are with our two special guests from the top of the country, or near the top. We have Paul Sieslak in the upper left-hand corner near in uh, Oregon, infectious disease, public health. And then in the middle top part of the country, Fargo, North Dakota, we have Paul Carson. And so we will probably stumble over ourselves referring to the two Pauls, but we're going to have fun anyway. So Paul Carson, <laughs> Paul Sieslak, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. First time as a duo. Great to be here. So- Thanks for having us. You... Betcha. So how are we better off or worse off now in the pandemic in our fair country than we were compared to last year during the peak in the spring, the peak in the summer, and then this horrendous peak last winter? Let's let's go to the upper left-hand corner for Paul Sieslak first. Well, I think the best thing is that uh, a lot of people have immunity, either by dint of having been infected already uh, or by having been vaccinated. And Paul Carson? Yeah, totally agree. And I think the likelihood of us having 
hospitals stressed or strained, um, exponential growth in cases is really unlikely now at this point. Yeah, the, the most vulnerable people for the most part have been vaccinated because we started uh, with the elderly who of course disproportionately uh, are the ones who end up in the hospital and die with COVID-19. Uh, and, and then we moved to progressively younger age groups, but stressing people who had risk factors for severe disease. So what percent of the population do you think needs to be vaccinated before we can go back to a greater semblance of normal, normal being going into a movie theater without spacing or masks? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that first, uh, Paul. You know, I, I'm, I'm loath to put a number on it because I, it's a function not only of how many people have been vaccinated, but uh, also a function of how many people have already had uh, the disease. And, you know, if 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the population has already had the disease, then you don't need quite as many people vaccinated in order to um, make sure that your hospitals aren't going to get overwhelmed. Uh, in Oregon, our governor recently set a threshold at 65 percent. Uh, vaccinated, so there's there's a number uh, that that some people can use, um, but but it's in conjunction, I think, with uh, with a lot of people already having had the, the disease. And Carson, I guess uh, Paul Carson, do <laughs> do we have an idea of how many people might have natural immunity? Do we have any better guesses about that? Um, I think that's still a, a bit of an unknown. You know, we, we don't have um, large scale seroprevalence studies like we'd like. We, we've got some hints of that. It's really variable around the country. I've, I've seen, uh, um, you know, earlier on in New York, it was like 25, 26, 27 percent, certainly more than that now. Um, some people think here in North Dakota, where we were very heavily hit, uh, you know, the hot spot of the world in October, November, that we <laughs> might be somewhere around, you know, 40, 40 plus percent. Um, but I, I don't think we know. And then the other thing about even some of the antibody studies that we do have is that the antibodies uh, to natural infection aren't real robust when people have very mild infection or asymptomatic infection uh, and fade yes. after a few months. And so it's not necessarily an accurate uh, um, picture. You um, still may retain immunity even though you don't have the antibodies. We hope that's right. Yes, we think so. I mean, that's certainly the case with other uh, a number of other infections. Um, we, we generate what's called an anamnestic or memory response, even when antibody levels fall maybe to lower levels. Um, that also remains to be seen. How long our immune uh, response to prior infection lasts? We don't know that yet either. One of the things that I, I stole, and I, I've got to say, I'm stealing uh, Paul Carson's phrase, the slow burn. I don't know if you, <laughs> if you picked that up somewhere, but I really like it because I'm looking at these graphs for hospitalizations and deaths and you see the big peak and I don't know, you just get the sense that this is just going to shrink on down to nothing. It might take a while. When, when do we get to put a fork in this? When can we say... Uh, nobody's got to watch that anymore. It's, it's going to just fade out. I mean, don't hold your breath, but it's, it's all over folks. Uh, I'll say, you know, I, I, I think we'll know it when we see it uh, with progressive lifting of restrictions and people gathering more and more. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to still see some people coming down with COVID-19, but if you don't see so many landing in the hospital that it never looks like your hospitals are threatened, then, um, then I think we'll say we're there at that point. In fact, I even saw an article uh, in the New York Times, uh, April 27th, and it was talking about the harms that can come to us if we try to keep sanitizing and masking too long because we need exposure to certain microorganisms. What do you guys think about that? You know, the, the whole microbiome, the hygiene hypothesis that came out in 1989. I think that's a, you know, that's a really interesting bit of science. And just to, for your listeners, um, you know, there was, there's some data that suggests this, you know, ultra clean, clean everything, put disinfectants even into, you know, the materials themselves, um, that it was actually uh, may be responsible for diminishing our exposure to uh, certain infections, antigens, uh, uh, things that stimulate our immune system, which it turns out we may need very early on in childhood to develop a normal immune system. And 
lacking that uh, may lead to like more problems with allergies and um, uh, skin problems and autoimmunity. And so uh, one of the things they say is like, you know, kids that are raised uh, out on the farm, kind of rolling around in the dirt with the dogs and the pigs and the, you know, uh, the animals have a lot less of those kinds of problems like asthma and, and allergies. And I suppose there's something to that. I don't, I don't see us masking and, you know, hand sanitizing and all of that forever. Yeah, I think it could be possible that um, whatever immunity you got from the vaccine or from an infection could be boosted by uh, repeated exposure to it. And and so that's that's likely to play some kind of role. You know, one of the things that I, I get from some folks, and I, we're going to dive into the vaccine stuff in more depth, I know, later. Um, what are the chances somebody's going to dodge COVID uh, where I really don't want to get the vaccine uh, but I, I haven't gotten the disease yet. My immune system must be clearly superior and I'm taking these supplements. Um, what are the chances I get away with it? I think we have to bear in mind this is a novel coronavirus, which means none of us have been exposed to it before. So presumably none of us have uh, native immunity uh, to it. And presumably all of us are susceptible. That said, you know, no, no pathogen kind of sweeps through 100% of uh, the population. But I think it's fair to say that probably the majority of us will get this. I, I, we'll probably get into this a little bit later. I, I'm much more circumspect that we're going to reach herd immunity, that this is, this is more likely to be something we're going to live with for the ongoing future. And like the other coronaviruses that we live with that cause the common cold, Virtually all of us have had one or more of those by the time we're about four years old. I think it's fair to say that most people are going to get this um, in the next six to 12 to 18 to 24 months if they haven't been vaccinated or haven't had it already. I agree on both points. I think most people who aren't vaccinated will get it. And I think the disease will become what we call endemic uh, within the population indefinitely into the future. Over a year ago, we were talking a lot about comparisons to influenza. We know a boatload more about this virus than we did a year ago. What is the accurate comparison to a typical influenza year in the U.S.? Uh, I'll start with that. So there's a huge range of how many people are estimated to get infected with influenza each year in the United States. It's anywhere between 9 or 10 million to up to 45 million people. Um and of those, somewhere around, again, big variation, 140,000 uh, to um, uh, uh, 810,000 uh, hospitalizations um, and about 12,000 to 61,000 deaths. That's, so, so there's a big range. You compare that to COVID, it's infected about 32 million uh, so far. So that's comparable to how many people get infected with influenza each year. But it's hospitalized over 2 million. Uh, that's about five times more than one of the worst flu years uh, we've had, which was like 2017 was one of the worst years we've had in the last decade. And it's about five times that many. And it's killed almost 600,000, which is 10 times more than one of the worst flu years we've had in the last decade. So it, it's a lot worse uh, than, than influenza. Thank you for putting a fork in that one for us, Paul. <laughs> Well, what what now do you think is the true reproduction number for COVID in the U.S.? Or, or how has it changed over time? And, and to remind listeners, that's the average number of people infected newly from somebody who has the disease. Uh, if you're talking about the, the basic reproductive number, uh, that is without any interventions taken, it's really hard sure. to know, right? Because we are taking a lot of interventions and Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have been vaccinated and we don't know who uh, might have been infected before without having any symptoms and whatnot. Uh, I guess CDC's uh, best estimate is two and a half, but uh, uh, estimates go as high as 5.8. Um, and, and that's uh, certainly greater than influenza. I, I would I would ballpark it in the three to three and a half range, uh, at least just based on the fact that I think uh, now we're seeing uh, lots and lots of transmission uh, that isn't getting diagnosed, but that is uh, contributing to herd immunity to some degree. Uh, I think 
people are more reluctant to come in and get tested than they were uh, some time ago because they know they're going to get, you know, they're going to be in isolation if they test positive. And, uh, and, and looking at um, some serologic data, antibody data uh, that we get from the Red Cross, it looks like the rates of, have been climbing pretty, pretty steeply lately. Uh, I don't have the numbers handy, but, uh, but they've been going up a lot. So I think there's um, actually quite a bit of transmission out there, and it may be because we're seeing these more transmissible strains from, from the United you know, States. I think one snippet of data you sent earlier this week, Paul, uh, reflected that about a month ago, 13% of blood donations had antibodies, and then a month later, recently, 23% did. And that sounds like a big jump in a short period of time, if we can believe that. Right. And, and, and the data are imperfect, right? They're not a representative right. sample of the population and everything. But still, the, the trend is definitely there. And it's, um, it's uh, eyebrow raising. Any new word on how long natural immunity may last? I know we speculated early on, and I feel like with every month of the pandemic, we discover that it may last one month longer. Um, any, any new knowledge there? I just saw a study that was, uh, believe it or not, the country of Qatar has a, a, a very good nationalized uh, health system and database so they can track, you know, infections well. And they've been testing a lot and they've been vaccinating a lot. And I think they've got data out about eight months uh, now that looks uh, natural infection looks very protective. Good to know. Another number we talked about a lot, especially last spring and summer, was the infection fatality rate and the case fatality rate. How are we looking on that front? Well, uh, so, you know, the published data from multiple different countries and including the U.S. is that the infection fatality rate, and just to remind listeners what that means is out of all infections, including those that have no symptoms or very, very minimal symptoms, don't show up to the doctor, um, is is about 0.6% to 0.7% um, of all infected people uh, um, may die of this. Um, if you look at case fatality rate, which means y- you got sick and you kind of told somebody about it, you showed up sick, um, <laughs> that's around one and a half to 2.3%. I think, Paul, you were kind of, you know, had some uh, thoughts on why that you think that might be a touch on the high side. Uh, yeah, j- just figuring the the number of people who have already been reported with infection, nearly 10% of the U.S. population has been uh, reported as having had an infection. So uh, the true infection rate must considerably larger than that. So uh, I was ballparking in, in in the half percent range for infection fatality rate. But I, Which I, is I, good. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds good. So I, I get thrown back at me a lot of times. Well, 99.5% of people survive or 99.6 or whatever you kind of say. Sure. But if you go back to what we just talked about, if everybody gets an infection, that's like a couple million people dead in the United States, uh, uh, even with that um, low 0.5% mortality rate. And we'll get into it you know, here shortly, I'm sure. But um, hospitalizations is another thing. So what does survival mean? What does survival look like? Um, right. And that's another story. <clears throat> but again, you know, it's... It's several times the fatality rates that you see with influenza. Yes. And so I guess one of the things, like a conversation I have frequently with, with patients and friends is that, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, the COVID was here and it was deadly. It was going to kill everyone. And now we find out, you know, you, you have the 99.5% number that people like to use. But, but even people are like, okay, yeah, clearly it's worse than flu, maybe 10 times worse than the flu. Um, but still... I'd rather take my chances than all of this stuff. So I think there's a lot of our listeners who probably feel like a lot of the non-pharmaceutical stuff that we've done continue to do is really overkill. How, how do you respond to them? Uh, I, I would say they would probably change their mind if their local hospital were having, you know, ambulances show up at the doorstep and uh, no rooms available, and they were trying, you know, setting up tents in the parking lot and trying to treat people that way. Uh, you know, as Paul just said, a half percent of everybody is a lot of people. And uh, in general, um, we don't like to stomach that kind of um, morbidity and mortality. Uh, you know, that said, I, I do think that um, uh, it's reasonable to ask ourselves, you know, how many deaths have we prevented with all this and what has the cost been? 
Yeah, maybe that's that's another flip side of the coin that we don't think of. You know, we had all those models initially. Do we have any idea, you know, how many deaths we may have prevented by doing all this stuff? Kind of to, to have something to say we did do a lot of good. Paul Carson? Um, you know, I, I think it's very hard to say how many we prevented with all of this. I, I think it's a lot. Um, half a million, a million, a million and a half. I, I think it could easily be that sort of numbers. How much of it was necessary? Uh, you know, full on lockdowns uh, for extended periods of time, business closures and so on. Was that necessary? Or if we all would have got on board with masking, would that have been enough? I think those are questions we're going to be wrestling with for some time. I, I think um, at the beginning, to be fair, we really didn't know where it was going to go. We, did, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. And so there, it was probably overkill. But to your point, Andrew, like, you know, still going on. And now I live in a state where it's been very, very open, not a lot of the the very restrictive measures. And I, I'm I'm so I'm not as familiar with the states that have really uh, been under under that. Um, I think, though, we're at a point now where I'll, uh, most places need to be uh, lifting these things in, in large measure. So variants are in the news, but viruses do this. The flu vex, the flu viruses do it every year. How important are these vi variants? Is the news making more of a big deal about them than is necessary? Well, it, you know, there's always going to be variants, right? There will be variants and rumors of variants. I think that's in the Bible. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, the question is really uh, what do they matter? And they matter when... Uh, they're either causing more transmission or they're evading the immunity that you get from the previous strain or from a vaccine, or if they cause more serious disease uh, than, than the previous strains did. Um, and on those fronts, I, I think we know pretty definitively that the so-called UK strain, the B117 strain, is, is significantly more transmissible than the other strains. It's kind of taken over the United States. Uh, yes. at this point. But we also know that the strains that we've seen so far seem to respond uh, pretty well, or, or you can be protected against them by the vaccines that have been authorized for use in the United States. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine didn't do so well against the South African strain, um, but, uh, but the ones we have here seem to work pretty well. So, uh, so far, so good. And uh, the variants are, are not keeping me up at night. Anything to add, Paul Carson? I lose a little sleep over them. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I think, you know, we have to, I mean, these these viruses are subject to evolutionary pressure. And so we, we got a bunch of people getting vaccinated, but we still got uh, virus circulating. They will have evolutionary pressure to find a way to escape the uh, immune response uh, that we we're making. But I think as... Paul Cizlak just said, you know, the news is, for the most part, pretty good uh, with, with the current vaccines and our response. But it would not surprise me to find that some mutant variant half a year or a year from now has managed to do a better job of escaping the current vaccines. And we need a booster with a slightly modified vaccine, one or two. And, or and that's just like influenza viruses since the pandemic 100 years ago. Correct. They've been up and down. Those those viruses and, and the, the, you know the, it's more likely to happen the more viruses you have around that can mutate, so you know that the the, the measures to prevent that are, are are prevent circulation of the strains we've got now. Right, same type of thing. So you know, let's do one more question before we take a break. We're covering the big topic of epidemiology, and that is, um, you know, people talking about taking supplements and vitamins. You know, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D. Do we know that any of that made a difference? Uh, no. You know, vitamin D comes up periodically in public health circles as being, uh, you know, just a really good thing to take a supplement. And it, it's generally based on the observation that people with low vitamin D levels tend to be less healthy than people with higher vitamin D levels. Uh, but you get vitamin D by having your skin exposed to the sun. And who gets exposed to the sun? It tends to be people who are you know, outdoors and getting up and around and maybe, you know, jogging and getting exercise. And that's also associated with health. So there's an association that uh, has really yet to be proved to be causal. We don't know that by raising your vitamin D level, 
uh, you'll be any healthier at all. And I, I haven't seen anything along those lines in, in regard to COVID-19. Paul, Paul Carson, how about zinc? I know our, our local hospital for a time had that on their inpatient treatment regimen for COVID positive people. Yeah, we kind of toyed with that as well. Uh, and, um, and that's another one. So you kind of see vitamin D and you often will see zinc pop up. And it's like when we don't have a really good treatment for other things, these things sort right. of bubble back up. Vitamin C will kind of, you know, bubble back up. When you end up subjecting these to actually controlled trials, and now there's, I think there's been a couple with vitamin D. I, I'm not as sure about zinc. I haven't looked at that in a while, but they, they tend not to, to you know, the, have the proof in the pudding, if you will, of, uh, of showing protection. I've taken a vitamin D supplement. I, mean, I live in a state where we got darkness half of the year, uh, you know, um, <laughs> in the wintertime here. But um, I'm I'm really not under any illusions that this is going to, you know, for sure make me pull up for COVID. Well, we'll be back with more COVID on Dr. Doctor after our break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking about COVID with our favorite Pauls from the northern <laughs> aspect of America. Let's talk about long COVID. Um, I've definitely seen patients in my clinic. It's something that we read a lot about. Paul C's like, what should we know about long COVID? Oh boy, I'm afraid I have to punt on this one. Uh, I gotta, I gotta defer to my colleague Paul Carson. Paul Carson? Yeah. Um, you know, this is something I've, I've really been trying to follow uh, quite a bit, and I think this is a big deal. So. Um, you know, when people say, and, and you know, you had a guest on that I thought was just a compelling, if, if your listeners haven't heard the episode with, um, help me remember his name, the person. Jason Shanks. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, the president of our Sunday visitor. Uh, that was Institute, such an, yes. an incredible episode and uh, such a gripping story. And so, yeah, you know, 99.5% of people survive, but what does survival look like for a lot of people? And it's not a pretty sight for, uh, um, for a good chunk of people with this. So, if you were hospitalized with COVID and somewhere around five to 15% of people who have a symptomatic case of COVID will land in the hospital, your chances of having ongoing symptoms four to six months after that hospitalization are very high. 50% ongoing problems with fatigue, brain fog. We're talking about difficulty concentrating, difficulty um, you know, doing mental tasks, um, uh, headaches, muscle aches. Recent study of neurologic complications showed very high incidence of new diagnosis of anxiety or depression in even mild cases of COVID. In a study that looked at outpatient COVID, up to 25% of young people had ongoing symptoms at four to six months. And now there, there's actually clinics popping up dealing with the sort of long COVID, these drawn out uh, problems with symptoms. Studying the annals of internal medicine noted a higher incidence of new diagnosis of diabetes mellitus after COVID. You know, does this induce an autoimmune, you know, attack on our pancreas? I, I think, you know, we're going to be discovering, I think, for a while here, what are the long-term effects of this? And I think it's substantial. And, I, you know, I think when I, when I hear about the people who are concerned about the long-term effects of the vaccine, which... Uh, we know from prior vaccine trials, like nearly all serious adverse events happen in the first six weeks after the, after vaccination. Very, very rare to have anything later than that. To worry about some phantom of, uh, you know, down the road of the vaccine, which is highly unlikely, as opposed to the what we're seeing right in front of our faces of the long-term bad outcomes uh, from COVID, it's, the numbers aren't even remotely close. That's a great answer. A great question. And let's move on to some vaccine facts. But maybe we should start with some some falsehoods being propagated. What do you think are some of the the, the grossest forms of misinformation being strewn about the American public about the vaccines? I'm going to say it's um, the, the inference that anything that happens after someone gets vaccinated must have been caused by the vaccine. Uh, you know, we're vaccinating millions of people and millions of um uh, of the most medically fragile people. And, you know, just by chance alone, things happen, you know, meaning no disrespect. I remember a public health uh, professor when I was in med school saying, you can't give a million people a drink of water without one of them, uh, you know, passing out. Um, and, and, and that's sort of true when you're vaccinating large numbers of people. So I, I, I think it's, you know, I heard that somebody got vaccinated and then this happened and they, they infer that the vaccine must have done it. 
Yeah, I would, you know, I would point out, I, I don't think that's sort of like deliberate misinformation or disinformation. I think that's just misunderstanding and it's really common. So we're, we're going to see this a lot. Like I know somebody that got the vaccine and then X, Y, or Z happened. And as Paul just said, you know, we're, we're vaccinating almost 2 million people a day. I mean, it's slowing down now, but at our, you know, at our hike, we were uh, height, we were up to almost 3 million people a day, you know, 10 million people a week. If you follow 10 million people uh, over two months, you see, they will have thousands of uh, strokes, heart attacks, new diagnoses of cancer. And so just by serendipity, if you gave them a perfectly safe vaccine, we would see, you know, large numbers of problems when you've got 10 million people that you follow, you know, on a weekly basis over, over the next couple of months. So we, we, we have to compare that to a control group, an unvaccinated uh, group. And we, we do that on an ongoing, ba ongoing basis. Our FDA has a, a really excellent system for doing that. And we are just not seeing any uh, bad safety signals. The overt misinformation, you know, disinformation, as I would say, it, are the things like vaccines cause infertility. I saw a recent one lately that somebody said, oh, it's going to cause Alzheimer's disease. I mean, all, this is like whack-a-mole of disinformation um, with, with like zero evidence for some of these claims. How, how about if somebody has had COVID, the disease, um, should they take the vaccine? Should they let other people go first? Um, at this point, nobody has to wait for anybody to go first. We're we're in North Dakota here. We're giving it to Canadians because nobody uh, is taking it anymore in North Dakota, um, and we've offered it to other states. I think most states are in that slowdown phase. I mean, anybody who wants a vaccine can get it now. Um, whether somebody who's had COVID should get a vaccine, uh, my answer to that is yes. If you look at the immune response to the vaccine, in this case, the mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. The amount of antibodies made to those vaccines is about tenfold higher than what you get from natural infection. And, and if you got higher antibody levels, we think that usually means your protection will last longer. Um, and, uh, and we see breakthrough and, you know, repeat infections in people. It's not real common, but it definitely happens. I think that's a lot less likely uh, to happen if, if you're vaccinated. So my, from, answer, you know, my answer is that, uh, I did get COVID-19 between my two doses of Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> oh, my and, wow. Uh, yeah. And, the, and the, you know, the question was, well, should I get the second dose? And, <laughs> and I did. I did get the second dose. So, and what kind of side effects did you have with that dose? Uh, nothing. Imagine my disappointment. Nothing. <laughs> Spoken like a true infectious disease doctor. What, so, about, what about teenagers? Because now it's open to teenagers, right? Yep, as of yesterday, twelve to fifteen year olds yeah. approved. Any, anybody vaccine. should not get it, or should everybody get it? Yeah, so the Pfizer vaccine was approved yesterday for twelve and up. Um, I think Moderna won't be far behind uh, on that. Um, and I, I do think um, if if I had children in that age group, I would probably be um, uh, wanting them vaccinated. Uh, they they certainly do far better than adults, but um, we've had. We've had 15,000 hospitalizations in children in, and that's only 24 states reporting in, in the last year. That's about the same number of hospitalizations from all 50 states with influenza each year. We've had about 300 pediatric deaths. That's about twice the number we get uh, on a given year with influenza. And, and we vaccinate kids against influenza. I, I mean, I just, in this, you know, um, multi-inflammatory syndrome where, 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 you know, organs are have this marked inflammatory response is a really scary illness that's affected a little over 3,000 kids I just see no reason to take a chance with that with a vaccine that looks very very safe and very effective the, the FDA's authorization is supposed to be made on the grounds that um, they they concluded that the the benefits of the vaccine are likely to outweigh its risks um, you know I'm eager to hear, the uh, CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices discuss this tomorrow. Uh, they'll be discussing and voting uh, whether to recommend it tomorrow. Uh, but I think Paul's right. At, at this stage, when um, COVID-19 is still making significant numbers of people sick, uh, my best guess is that um, you're better off with the vaccine than without it, even at that age. To That's say nothing of the fact point. that it, it should you know, further suppress transmission. So the Johnson Johnson vaccine took a pause because of these rare reports of blood clots. How rare are they? 
And what's the appropriate denominator? In other words, what's the risk group? Because it's not all vaccinees. Right. So um, uh, up through, I think it was like um, uh, earlier, mid-April, uh, our monitoring processes, our safety monitoring processes detected that there seemed to be a signal of, uh, of a strange kind of blood clot. So it's not just routine sort of leg you know, uh, the kind of run-the-mill deep vein thrombosis of the leg. This was um, central uh, um, vein sinus thrombosis, which is an unusual uh, form of blood clot. And it was associated with low platelet counts, which is even more unusual. And so this turns out to be kind of a, a, a sort of strange, rare uh, type of thrombosis or clot. Uh, and it's in the neighborhood of, and, and it was 15 people that uh, had been diagnosed with that. And overwhelmingly, it was in uh, females of reproductive uh, age, um, around 18 to um, 50 or so. And, um, and uh, there was one case in a male in the vaccine trial, none uh, since then reported so far that I'm aware of. Um, so it, it's it's really kind of uh, younger females, but it's in the neighborhood of um, uh, five per million doses to the, the highest uh, risk group was the 30 to 39 year old females. That was about 11.8 per million uh, doses of the vaccine. So very rare. If that was our only vaccine, um, it the, the benefits of that would still greatly outweigh those risks. But it's not our only vaccine. Uh, we, we have other choices and, and they're for the most part readily available. Also, you know, the Johnson Johnson is the ethically problematic one. It's a it's it's grown in an aborted fetal cell line. So I think for Catholics and certainly for women in, of childbearing age, um, I would uh, I would be recommending that they try and get because this care. clotting problem hasn't been seen with either mRNA vaccine, correct? It is not. No, and it was seen. Good. It was seen with, also with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a similar type of um, non-replicating viral vector vaccine, like the Johnson and Johnson. Uh, yeah, I would just add that if if the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was the only vaccine you could get, uh, I, I would get it because uh, you know the risk of COVID and and hospitalization and death from COVID still outweighs greatly uh, the risk of this um, side effect. Yeah. You know, we were talking about vaccines and public health. One thing that I, I have seen passed around is the idea that folks under 16 should not get the vaccine and we should send it to poor countries uh, in the spirit of solidarity. Um, Paul Carson, you wrote an article about that some time ago. Uh, let's start with you. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think... Um especially we as Catholics, uh, you know, on, on really trying to look at, at solidarity, sort of what's what's just, what's equitable. I think a strong case can be made that whatever vaccine resources are out there should go to other countries now that have, for their most vulnerable population, the elderly, the people with chronic medical conditions, et cetera. Um, you know, for us to, you know, ramp up now and vaccinate our young people, um, that are frankly at much, much lower risk while you have, you know, temporary crematoriums in parking lots in India, I, I think a hard thing to, to balance or justify. Now, we're not making the policies. Will they go there? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how, how the administration is really looking at that, but I think a strong case can be made for that. Paul Cieslak? Uh Totally agree. Uh, we, we can't just be focused on ourselves. We have to have um, our, our fellow man in mind. I, I always think it's interesting where the, you know, we were talking in, in another episode with Brendan Radigan, uh, for our listeners who f we follow him through medical school. And he talked about how, you know, public policy is really the combination between follow the science, but also the values of the culture. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to discuss a little bit was the Catholic response and the CMA response to vaccines, not only with solidarity, but also on, on kind of another aspect of it with the vaccine passport idea and mandatory vaccinations for certain people, or if you want to, you know, do this or that, you have to be vaccinated. Um, Paul C's like, how should we think about that, the idea of mandatory vaccinations as Catholics? Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, mandatory vaccinations are, are licit. 
given sort of grave enough circumstances. You know, I, I, I think that the school-based requirements for a lot of the vaccines are justified uh, because some of these diseases could spread like wildfire in schools and, and make a lot of people sick. And, and with some diseases more than others, uh, school-based transmission really drives uh, the epidemic. We have, of course, you're probably aware that we have not found that to be the case with COVID-19, but uh, with some we have. So, um, you know, I think it, it's kind of uh, based on, on the gravity of the situation because we also value, um, uh, you know, autonomy and, and uh, people's uh, right to decide what kind of medical care they should get. And in the case of vaccines, uh, some of them are ethically problematic and we need to be sensitive to people's uh, ethical concerns as well. So, um, you know, regarding COVID-19 vaccines, I would not favor uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, other people may may weigh these things a little bit differently, but I suffice to say that I think it needs to be a, a pretty grave circumstance to um, to take away people's right to make that decision for themselves. Speaking of children, how much do they contribute to spread of disease? You said it was lower than the influenza. How low is it? And if it is low, do they need to receive the vaccine? Or is there a cutoff at like age 10 or 12 where the risk of them spreading is even lower? I don't know the answers to those questions. Um, I, you know, we, we think it's pretty low because uh, experiences in schools that have been opened uh, have not found a lot of transmission uh, among school-age children. And I think in the high school setting, it's a little bit different. Uh, they, they start to behave uh, more like adults in terms of their ability to transmit the virus. But, uh, but at least in the elementary school setting, you know, the, a lot of the transmission seems to be related to teachers bringing it in, uh, getting together in teachers' lounges. Um, and then, uh, you know, in some of the other school settings, it, it's often the extracurricular activities. I mean, even if you're even if your sports team is is practice practicing um, uh, socially distance uh, sporting, uh, they tend to be getting together in other places for team meeting. Or <laughs> you know, uh, you're you're bringing people together regardless. And a lot of the transmission is happening in, in in those kind of settings. So let's end up this interview talking about. How does vaccination make our day-to-day -day lives different, and how can we live differently now? I want to start with the CDC, okay? I personally think they've been tone-deaf on outdoor camps for children, still requiring that children outdoors this summer require masks. How and in what universe does that make sense? Paul Carson. Uh, it, it doesn't. Um, I, I, I've always thought that the sort of mask recommendations for outdoor activities have been silly. I, I was always shaking my head when TV personalities were railing against the people at the beach, walking along the beach and, you know, saying, you know, <laughs> you know shaming them because they weren't wearing masks. We, we know outdoor activities are very, very low risk. I, I think we, we certainly should be liberalizing that all the way now. Um, and I, I think the CDC should be, um, I'd like them to see them being a, a little more proactive about what more can we do um, once we're vaccinated or, or much of the population is vaccinated. Paul Cieslak. Totally agree. Um, you know, people need to be outside. The more that they're inside, the worse, the worse off we are, the more likely they are to actually transmit the disease to someone. Outdoors, ventilation is essentially infinite. Uh, very little risk of, of transmitting. So when, when what are you guys doing now? When are you wearing masks or distancing at this point in the pandemic? Paul Carson. Yeah, just sort of philosophically where I'm at, which is probably not, you know, where the CDC or our own health department is going to land. But, um, you know, when do I kind of think we stop? I think we stop when everybody who wants a vaccine has had a chance to get the vaccine. And we're pretty close to there now. And because... Otherwise, what's the endpoint? Where's the goalpost here? Uh, and, and if it's like a certain level of immunity or whatever, how are we going to measure that? Do we count people who've been infected that we don't know whether or not they've been infected? It's a never-ending target. And I, I, I sort of feel like if you've had a chance to get the vaccine and you've taken it or not, and everybody that wants it has had that chance, we're kind of done. And so I personally now, um, I'm much more comfortable not wearing masks when I can, when I'm not causing scandal by not wearing a mask. Um, 
And so uh, my wife and I actually are having a conversation now about pretty much every Sunday at church. I, I, you know, I'm the public health infectious disease guy, and I'm, I'm kind of ready to stop wearing it at, at church. And my wife is like, nope, we keep wearing it until our priest isn't wearing it anymore out of solidarity and, you know, as an example for, with, with him and others in the parish. And I think that's also a reasonable thing to do. Like, I don't want to invite, um, uh, you know, concern or distress or scandal for, for others. But I think at some point we're pretty close to these not being necessary. Paul Cezak, how about you? Uh, the only thing I would add to what Paul Carson said was um, – when I when it's pretty clear that hospitals aren't being threatened with being overwhelmed, and and again I think for the most part we're there when when restrictions have been progressively lifted, and you know you may be seeing some transmission but you're not seeing the hospital census you know kind of going through the roof, then uh, I I think it means uh, that we're there. Remember that we imposed all these restrictions in the first place in order to protect hospital capacity. And if that's no longer being threatened, I think it's uh, time to loosen up. And as far as my own personal mask wearing, same. Uh, generally, not so much when I'm outdoors, uh, but to avoid giving scandal. And uh, and when I'm in public places indoors, I tend to wear the mask. F- follow-up question regarding that. What about for healthcare people? Um, are, are hospitals and healthcare organizations forever masking now, limited visitors, et cetera? That's a good one, uh, Andrew. Uh, so I, there's probably a note of, uh, you know, personal. Um, uh, per, we personal we have this there. discussion all the time because yeah. there's some some smaller groups that have, have moved away from it. The big places, I think liability are hanging on to it. We're in kind of in the middle and I'm like, I have no idea what to do, but I'm not sure yeah. anybody's ready to move quick. Yeah, that's that's tougher because, you know, we really have an obligation to our patients to do the most to protect them. And, and of course, we're seeing a lot of very vulnerable people. Um, and we also know that the vaccine isn't 100 um, percent, you know, uh, up to 15 percent of sort of the elderly or people with, you know, compromised conditions may may not uh, respond to or be protected by the vaccine. I, I my initial inclination is to say the same thing, like when everybody that's wants the vaccine has had a chance to get it, maybe we back that off. But I might add on to that, that I really like to see kind of a very low or that, that low endemic transmission in the community um, and not, you know, spikes or peaks or whatever. And that brings us to the end of an incredibly full episode of COVID data for our Beloved listeners here on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with the answer to the trivia question after the break. Thank you, Drs. Paul Carson and Paul Cieslak. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to today's trivia question. Tom, what do we got? Category blood clots. What are the two main components of a blood clot? One is cellular, one is not. Well, the cellular one is actually a part of a cell. The big cell is called the megakaryocyte. Most of you have never heard of that, but it breaks up into these little parts called platelets. So platelets are the piece of a cell necessary to form a clot, and they sense when there is collagen exposed on the inside of a blood vessel. In other words, when there's been some kind of trauma, either external or internal. But then it also needs what our clotting cascade makes, and that's a protein called fibrin. And these little fibers of fibrin form a net into which the platelets land and form a blood clot. So the answer, platelets and fibrin. Isn't so Andrew, what random are Random chance top? evolution, pretty amazing, Tom. Like, Yeah, random. Yeah, they, they just <laughs> happen to occur. So uh, what, what are your kidding. top three takeaways from uh, Paul Times 2? Yeah, I love those guys. They are my favorite public health guys because believe it or not, and you know, we see Dr. Fauci on TV, a lot of the public health guys, this is what they live for. This is a once in a lifetime thing. And they're ready to tap out. What I heard them say was that as soon as it's not scandalous, they want to get the masks off. And so for them to be feeling that way, that's powerful. So they, they're they ready to be done. They're fatigued. Too. And, and offline, we were talking, you know, they said when every adult has had a chance to receive a vaccine and they're thinking that's going to be sometime around end of May, beginning of June. Yeah. I'd say that's takeaway number two is that we, we've all been holding our breath till everybody can get one. And we're nearly there. So that's a huge blessing. And then I guess number three takeaway that that's worth repeating and remembering is that the cases will never be zero. 
in their estimation is that this is going to be something that's endemic, if not seasonal, it's going to be here forever. So for, for the people who are playing along at home and following the charts and the cases, our goal is not necessarily to make it to zero. That'd be an unreasonable goal. But, you know, they talked about if everybody can get a shot that wants one and we're nearly there. So for those who are pandemic fatigued, such as myself, this was all good news. And so I, I loved hearing it from them. Yes. I mean, they are so darn balanced. They've got, you know, the the beliefs uh, and the values of our Catholic faith, as well as the experts' knowledge of public health. And so they have been my go-to guys the entire pandemic. So I think you can take it to the bank. Thank goodness. Well, thank you for being with us for this maybe final COVID-related episode. Who knows if it's that good of news, but thank you for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app if they can't listen on the radio. Yeah, and until the next international pandemic, uh, be sure to rate and review our show and help new listeners find us. Believe it or not, we talk about things besides COVID, and we have a whole bunch of episodes you can find on drdoctor.org. If there's something health-related that you're interested in, I bet you you can find it there. And so be sure to tune in next week also for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.